Hi, you're now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. We're happy to bring you sermons like this one every week. You can find other sermons at our site at harvest-community.org. So without further ado, here's our speaker. As I suspected, Dave's church would be a fun church. I think you guys uh, know how to have a good laugh and uh, enjoy yourselves. Um, And uh, so... That's great. <laughs> um, I really wish I had more time to develop certain themes, um, uh, just because out of my own church, again, I've been taking a lot more time. But we're going to move on uh, all the way over to chapter 5 and talk about some of the other aspects of gospel living that I think uh, uh, we, want, we need to include. And so... We're going to look at uh, Genesis, Galatians chapter 5. Let me read from verse 13. You, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. The entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. I want to point out that some things are meant to go together. You're supposed to, where there's smoke, there's fire, right? Where there's fruit, there are trees. One must produce the other. The other, one is the expression of the other for the fulfillment of the other. They have to go hand in hand. There's no point in having an iPod if you don't have headphones. I mean, they have to go Together, And that's, I'm going to suggest, the relationship between doctrine and application. And in the second part, and the latter part of Galatians 5, 5 and 6, Paul moves past an explanation of the gospel to, like, what are we supposed to do now? How are we supposed to live it out? And I want to take a few moments to explain the necessity of having these two together. At one, uh, one problem for some is to kind of go light on the doctrine and just zoom in on application. The mindset seems to be, look, uh, what's important is what you do. That's kind of like where the, the rubber meets the road. You know, that's kind of like the bottom line. It's, so what are you going to do about it? And for some, it seems that the goal of preaching and the goal of our quiet time and the goal of Christian living is to get ourselves to do the right things. The whole purpose of doctrine is to just get us to do missions and do evangelism and to do mercy and to serve and to give and to grow our mustaches and donate lots of money. And these are all great things to do. But I want to uh, point to a danger. This is from Dallas Willard in The Great Omission. He writes, spiritual formation does not aim at controlling actions. This is an absolutely critical point. If in spiritual formation you focus on action alone, you will fall into the deadliest of legalism and you will kill your, kill other souls and die yourself. You will get social conformity. That has happened over and over again in the past. 
Oh, whoops, sorry. There you go. That has happened over and over again in the past. And it is where the various, quote, spiritualities, past and present, begin to exact a dreadful price. Focusing on the outward activities and actions, not on the inward parts, not on the spirit. To focus on action alone is to fall into Phariseeism of the worst kind and to kill the soul. So I want to just pause for a moment to say, as we talk about application, if we think, all right, bottom line, I'm going to go do these things, Dallas Willard would point out, we are in grave danger of legalism and Pharisaism, where we think we're good because we do the right things and we've missed the gospel entirely. We're just Pharisees. So what if you... Share the gospel, go on mission, serve the poor, grow your mustache. That's all great, by the way. That's great. You guys are wonderful. But do you understand? Like, if that's all we're trying to do as spiritual leaders or as church leaders or as a church, we can get social conformity. I mean, we can pull that one off. We can get people to to do those things, but we will kill the soul in the process. There is a danger in thinking, as long as I serve my small group, do my quiet time, go on missions and give lots of money, that I'm a good Christian. That my soul is well. So as we talk about application, I want to say we cannot leave the gospel section. In fact, the application section is simply the gospel section actualized. It's the gospel experienced and unleashed within our hearts and lives. And if we try to do the application without the internal gospel, we, we just go right back to where we started. That there is, this is not Christianity. This is social conformity. This is legalism. This is Pharisaism. But it is not. It is just stapling fruit to the trees. On the other hand, we don't want to just say, well, what's important is doctrine. What's important is the gospel. What's important is that we understand theology and we understand what the Bible says. And we somehow content ourselves that because our heads are getting bigger, our souls are being changed. And to that, again, we want to caution that true theology is not just in our minds. True theology is to be lived out that That is the nature of theology. The nature of the gospel is an experiential truth. You cannot have doctrine without application. It's an oxymoron. It's, 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 it is doctrine, theology. The gospel is inherently practical because this is all about what changes our lives. And so we want to have both. We want to have doctrine and application. Knowing that if you have one without the other, it only proves you don't have either, really. Okay, so let's look at Galatians 5 as we move on to this practical section of Galatians. We'll notice five components here in this section. First, there is the foundation of our living. My brothers, you, my brothers, were called to be free. That's where we start. He then gives a negative command, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. He then gives a positive command. Oops. 
positive command. Rather, serve one another in love. He then gives a positive incentive. The entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then finally, a negative incentive. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. I want to take each of those five components and just spend just a few brief moments discussing each of them. All right, so five statements. Number one, we have two signs of freedom. We didn't have time to develop this, but freedom is a huge theme here in Galatians. Paul continually contrasts a life of slavery versus a life of freedom. And up until this point in Galatians, his main point had been that we're freed from the law. We're freed from condemnation. We're free from moral obligation. Christ has fulfilled all of that. But there is the other side of freedom, and that is not just we're freed from the law, but now we are freed to love. Just, it means, it doesn't just mean we don't have to fulfill the law. Now it's saying we are freed to love. There is the other side. Freedom is not the absence of the law, but the presence of the Spirit. And we're going to talk a lot more about this tonight. Number two. When he says, do not use your freedom to indulge a sinful nature, we notice gospel living does not mean licentiousness. And I heard someone had uh, asked when I used the phrase earlier, so uh, they turned to their pastor, what does that mean? It just means, just, it's just a fancy word for saying, you're just indulging your sinful nature. You're just doing whatever your lusts desire. Instead of being legalistic and trying to do and follow the law, you're just saying, hey, I'm going to do whatever I want in a sinful, indulgent, self sinful nature kind of way. Gospel living does not mean licentiousness. It does not mean we just live as we please. So Paul is here saying, do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. And I've tried to say before, and so let me just say again, for those of us who may find ourselves kind of liking this gospel teaching, yeah, we don't have to be legalistic. We don't have to fulfill the law, prayer meetings, read your Bible, go on missions. Oh, that's all so legalistic. I find in Korean American churches that there is often a reaction. You come up from a very legalistic youth group or very legalistic college ministry and you just swing to the other side, rejecting everything. And you say, well, that's all so legalistic. And you go, Woo-hoo! I don't have to do anything. Actually, I'll just tell you at our church. That's the story. There was a time when we were a very legalistic church. You're supposed to go to prayer meeting. You're supposed to serve in small group. You're supposed to give that people all came to prayer meeting for legalistic motivations. <laughs> and then all of a sudden we discover the gospel. And we're like, you know what? God doesn't care if you go to prayer meetings or not. It's because Jesus died on the cross for your sins. That's where your justification stands. And you know what? Now, they don't come to prayer meetings. (laughs) Something's wrong here now. (laughs) Something's wrong. That the only reason why we went to prayer meetings were for legalistic motivations. And you take that away and all of a sudden people don't want to pray, read their Bible, serve, give. And if you find yourself in that category, I would like to suggest to you again the question. So what makes you so sure you're saved? What makes you so sure that you're a child of God and that God is your father? Because James makes it pretty explicit. In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. Some will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe there is one God? Good. Even demons believe that and shudder. You say you have faith, but there is no deeds. It only says, Scripture makes it pretty clear, that that faith is worthless. 
That's no evidence at all. They have all the doctrine straight, have, you know, the gospel presentation down to a T. But if there is no deed, if there is no righteous living, if there is, if there is no love, then, and you gotta wonder if this tree is alive. There's no fruit on the tree. You wonder if the tree is alive. Number three, we are freed to love one another. This, I think, is a central verse in the book of Galatians. You are not called to, you are brothers, you are called to be free. Do not use your freedom to indulge a sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. We've been freed to serve one another in love, I think, captures a huge part of what Paul pictures as gospel freedom and gospel living. It's what he says earlier in chapter 5, verse 6. The only thing that counts is faith. Because this is a life of faith, not effort, not law. It's faith expressing itself through love. The sign of the gospel transformed Christian is that we are, we live by faith and that faith expresses itself through love. And so I want to take a few moments as we try to tie this together with your theme here. We're going to reach up and hopefully in the gospel we understand how we reach up to our Savior and our God and to His story of who He is and what He's done for us. And now we want to reach across. I want to suggest that it is a gospel that changes how we reach across to one another. How we are freed now to love and serve one another. And without the gospel... Our reaching across is humanistic, moralistic, and limited. Let me try to uh, put it this way. Um, oh, gosh. See, well, there's uh, what I would like to contrast as living to get and living because you've already received kind of living. I'm going to suggest for a lot of us, When we reach out, when we reach across to people, when we're kind of nice to people, being friendly to people, it's usually not so innocent. Usually, oftentimes, there is a living to get component. Let's just say that we're nice to people, we're reaching out to people here at church and classmates and coworkers because, well, because we want to be accepted. We want to be liked. We want to be loved. We are hungering for people to accept us and care for us and befriend us. And so that's why we're nice to people. We're reaching across, but we're reaching across so that we can gain. We're living to get something. I'm going to suggest that that kind of living is not... We can't reach across very well. Our our serving one another in love is very tainted because... If that's our motivation, that we're only doing this so that we can find acceptance, so that we can find friendship, then probably you'll do one of several things. Maybe you'll just, you'll just like people who like you. You like people who like you because your whole goal is, is to be liked. And so you're just going to like the people who are going to like you because that's all you really want is to be liked. So you just like those who like you. Or maybe you find yourself always saying yes. You have a hard time ever saying no, even though you know you're not going to do it. (laughs) Even though you know you can't do it. But you just say, yeah, oh sure, no problem, anytime. Why? Because there's this fear of rejection, fear of, oh, I don't want to disappoint them. Oh, I don't want, I don't want to hurt their feelings. And so you just say nice things. Why? Because you, what you really want is for them to like you. Or, 
Or maybe you're just very protected. It's really hard to get to know you. You're very distant and aloof. There are a lot of barriers because, because of the fear of rejection. You, you so much don't want to be disliked. So much don't want to be rejected. And so you keep people at arm's length because, because you want to protect and make sure that you never get hurt. Because your whole goal is to gain love and gain friendship and to avoid rejection. Or for some of us, just more innocently, you're just, and I mentioned this the other day, you know, you're just thinking always about what they're thinking about you. You're not really thinking about them. You're just thinking about how they might be thinking about you. You don't care about them. You just care about how they, how they think about you. There's this great line. Oh, I hope I remember it. Something like in their twenties, I spent all my time worrying about what people thought. In my thirties, I kind of got tired. In my thirties, I tried a little less. In my forties, I kind of got tired. In my fifties, how does it go? And somewhere in there, he goes, and in my fifties, I realized that they, that, that people were never thinking about me to begin with. <laughs> because everyone's just thinking about themselves. Anyway, but if all you're doing is thinking about what they're thinking about you, you're not loving them. You're just living to gain, right? You're just living to get. And Paul says, basically, you're not freed to love. You're just still trying to secure Things for yourself. However, if we believe that we are already loved to the core, we are already radically, deeply accepted and we feel it. We feel his love just showered over us and we feel significant and we feel embraced and we feel accepted in his family. Then when you reach across to love people, you're not doing it so that they'll They'll like you. You don't need that anymore. You can just freely love them. That's what Paul is referring to. We are freed to love because we're not no longer just trying to get love. Let me uh, use marriage as an ex- as an example. Marriage is supposed to be a metaphor for the gospel. A metaphor for how Christ relates to the church. And so now, I've done this a few times now, I, at my weddings, I'll say, uh, I'll, I'll turn to them and I'll say, you know, the marriage, marriage is a picture of the gospel. And do you know what that means? That means this. And I'll say, Grace, do you recognize what this means? James is about to say, for better or for worse, till death do you part, I promise my love to you. Period. There are no conditions, no footnotes, no nothing. He is promising this day that he will love you this day and every day hereafter, period. Think about that, Grace. That means if you never do the dishes, never do the laundry, you never cook for him, you nag, you spend all his money, you flirt with other men. You, you, he says right now, this day, he's promising, I will love you, period. Do you understand that? You can do whatever you want, Grace. Because he's saying it right now in front of all these witnesses. He's promising before God and to you and to all these people, I will love you, period. So you can do whatever you want. <laughs> Woohoo! But then I say, Grace, if you choose to cook for him and do his laundry and be nice to him, you're not doing it so that you can be loved. Because he's already told you he's going to love you. He's vowed to love you. 
If you want to cook for him and clean for him, fine, if that makes you happy. But you do it not so that you can be loved. You do it because you are already loved. That's why you do it. You do it because you are already loved. And you love him. You see, it's a different kind of love. Not the love to get the love to be loved, but love because I already have love and so now I'm free to just give love. Do you understand? Sorry, this thing keeps falling off my ear. Am I? Okay. Sorry, let me just throw in a quick illustration. A favorite gospel illustration that I give is American Idol. You all watch the American Idol? You know, big show, lots of umpteen million viewers. And this year, you know, if you don't know the premise, they have all these contestants. And each week, the person with the lowest vote, they all sing. And the person with the lowest votes gets eliminated off the uh, off the roster until they got into five, four, three, two. And then at the finals, they have two. And this year, it was David Cook and David Archuleta. And there they are singing. The two Davids are singing, singing, singing. And then they sing for like two hours. Oh my goodness. I mean, it's like how many songs? They sing again and again and again. And finally, and that last night is the season finale. You know, they have all these weird things on the show. And, you know, how many times Ryan Seacrest will say, and the American Idol is after these messages. You know, he'll kind of postpone it for a little while. And then, and then finally at the end of the night, Ryan Seacrest says, and the American Idol is. After 80-some million votes, ah, da, 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 da. David Cook, woo! And then, like, the fireworks go off and all these things fall down. And, uh, and then you know what David Cook does? He sings again! <laughs> I mean, he's been singing all semester! And now, here at the end, he sings again! But this time, his singing is different from every other song he's ever sung that season. Right? Because prior to that song, every song he sang, he sang to become the American Idol. But that last song, he didn't sing to become the American Idol. He sang because he is the American Idol. Do <laughs> you understand? That's gospel living. We sing not to become the American Idol. We sing because we are the American Idol. We serve not because we need to be loved. We serve because we already are loved. That's the freed to love and serve one another. Paul is referring to when you get the gospel, you're freed. You don't need to be loved anymore. You already are loved. Number four. Serving in love is fulfilling the law. Verse 14, the entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. I think it is somewhat paradoxically profound. That essentially Paul is saying you cannot fulfill the law by trying to fulfill the law. All right. We just said if you try to fulfill the law, that's legalism. That's works righteousness. That's self-effort. That doesn't work. It can't work. That's not gospel living. You cannot fulfill the law of love by trying to fulfill the law. The only way you can fulfill the law of love is when you're freed from the law. See, this is, did you get this? It's a paradoxical profoundness to say the only way you can fulfill the law is when you don't have to fulfill the law. And when you don't have to fulfill the law, now you're freed. You're freed to love. And now that you're free to love and you love, you fulfill the law. 
is what Paul's saying. In other words, gospel living is not licentiousness. Gospel living fulfills the law. It fulfills the law because you've been freed from trying to fulfill the law. And so now in that freedom, you love. And now in your loving, you actually fulfill the law. That's what Paul is saying. Serving one another is thus fulfilling the law. The gospel does not mean we don't fulfill the law. We do fulfill the law. But not by effort, not by discipline, but by freedom. By the Spirit. Gospel living is not licentiousness. If you find no love and righteousness in your life, again I ask the question, what makes you think that this tree is alive? I've uh, repeatedly challenged my church because I think Galatians invites this reflection of, are you really living in the gospel? What evidence do you have? And I repeatedly have said, you know, I think some of us should honestly ask ourselves the question. So what, what makes you think you're saved? What evidence is there that you have the gospel in your heart and in your life? And uh, to my mild surprise, I later was talking with some members and... <laughs> The guy's like, Pastor Paul, you know, actually recently my struggle has been. I'm not really sure if I'm saved. <laughs> you know, after everything you've said, I look at my life and I go, I'm a nice guy and I know a lot and I do a lot of nice things. But if I were really honest with who I am, I don't know if I can answer that question. My suspicion is. That a lot of us, a lot of in my own church. People think they're saved more than they should. Because when examined carefully for fruit, not just you're a loving person because you've always been a loving person, but where is spirit-generated, gospel-generated love in our lives? When asked that question, I think too many of us have too little to point to to give us safe assurance that we see the power of the gospel in our lives. Because we're not fulfilling the law. But the gospel does fulfill the law. Finally, number five, the absence of the gospel, uh, the absence of gospel freed love leads to destruction. Verse 15, if you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. Left to ourselves we will tear each other apart like wolves. Isn't that true? My guess is if you're honest about your relationships, any relationship that has any kind of depth, transparency, authenticity, and honesty involves conflicts. Because you put two sinners together, you're going to get conflicts. Ask any married Couple, I mean, it's just part of living with that other sinner and that other sinner living with you. There's conflicts. Think about your relationship with your parents, with your siblings, with your children, with your roommate, any relationship you point to, or you're just really superficial, or you just never see each other and spend time together. 
But if there's any kind of intimacy and any kind of honesty, you see conflict. Or if you don't see conflict, it might be because I'm going to call it you have underground conflict. You're not actually fighting, but you're just like bitter, angry, annoyed, frustrated. It's like conflict on low simmer, you know, back burner, just brewing slowly, percolating. And one day it's going to that thing's going to blow. But but right now you smile and you live cordially and you meet at church and you smile and everything goes on. But it's just because it's conflict underground or it's because you don't have any real relationships. (laughs) <laughs> That's why you don't have any conflicts. Because <laughs> you don't have any relationships. Everything's superficial. Just play sports, talk about the weather. You know, there's nothing to fight about. Because <laughs> you don't really get close enough to fight about anything. But the reality is, you put any sinners together, you're going to have conflicts. The absence of gospel-freed love leads to destruction. It leads to conflicts. And the answer to those conflicts If you examine any conflict you have in your life, spouse, kids, parents, roommate, whatever it might be, examine any conflict you have in your life. And I would like to suggest that at the core of every conflict is a failure to believe the gospel. It's a failure to believe the gospel because it is the gospel that frees your heart to love so that you don't have to have that devouring of one another. I'd like to spend some time back on number three, that we are freed to love one another. And um, I'm going to use uh, some thoughts from John Piper's Future Grace. When James discusses why we have conflicts with one another, James chapter four, he says we fight because we don't get what we want. There's something that we want. There's some unmet desire. And because we're trying to get it, that's why we're fighting. And as I've said, gospel living moves us from trying to get, which is why we're fighting, because we're trying to meet those unmet desires. We don't have to meet those unmet desires. We can move from trying to get to it's already given. We don't need to try to get love. We already have love. We don't need to try to get significance. We already have significance. But James says the reason why we fight is because because we're not getting what we want. We have unmet desires. Well, Piper describes what I'm going to call love cancers. Things that destroy love. Things that, that cave in on the I need to get, I need to get kind of living. He lists three. One, he suggests guilt. If we live in guilt, that is a love cancer. It just... It just, it just like destroys love. It sucks life out of love when we're living in guilt. Because what happens when you live in a lot of guilt? Well, I mean, different people do different things. My, some people, if you live in a lot of guilt, you just cave in with shame. You cave in with self-pity. And instead of being able to see and care about anybody else, you're too busy regretting and being embarrassed for yourself. Very self Centered. You're not thinking about other people. You're just thinking about yourself. Or if you feel real guilty, sometimes some people play the hypocrite. Oh, I'm not that bad. You see, I'm a good church person. I sing. I, I raise my hands during the songs. I, like, I do all these nice things. I go to the retreat. You see, I'm a good person. I'm a good person. And you live a duplicitous life to cover over your guilt. 
You overcompensate. You make up for it. And in so doing, you lack sincerity and authenticity in your life. And so your relationships are superficial. Because you can't let people get too close. Because you don't want them to see your sin. Or other people, uh, more aggressive, and a good defense is a, a good, uh, whatever, uh, defense offense, is, is, is you, and you feel guilty, and so what you do is you just go criticize everybody else's faults. Oh my goodness, you know how selfish that person, oh my, you know what she said, you're just so busy pointing out everybody else's faults so that you don't have to think about it and no one else would notice all your faults. So that you don't have to look at your guilt. You can just keep pointing the attention to other people. You see, they, this is a love cancer. You got someone riddled with guilt. They're not loving people. I mean, it goes in the opposite direction. Or Piper would suggest greed does not help love. Greed is a love cancer. Because we hoard and we spend all on ourselves. We lavish upon ourselves all the luxuries we can find. And our minds are preoccupied with everything we want and how we're going to get the everythings that we want. That's what fills our minds. We're not thinking about other people. We're just thinking about how to lavish ourselves. Or if you're filled with greed, then people aren't people to be loved. People are just means toward your, perp- your selfish agenda. People are just ways to get things for yourselves. Right? You just use people, manipulate people, try to, try to, you know, all that networking. It's just for yourself. You're just, you're just trying to gain for yourself. Greed is a cancer for love. You're not doing things in their interest. You're doing things in your interest. Or fear, a third love cancer. Some people watched way too much Dateline in 2020, and now the world is filled with sexual predators and like, uh, accident to happen around every corner and so you know you spend your whole life just being afraid can't let your children go anywhere you know you can't go anywhere yourself or or maybe you're afraid of being rejected by people kind of what we said earlier you're afraid of being rejected you're afraid of what they're going to think and so what do you do you avoid social contact you avoid certain social settings you avoid anything or place that might make you socially uncomfortable because you're afraid of what people think. You're not trying to serve and love. You're just trying to protect yourself. Because you live in fear. Or maybe you're afraid of failure in some assignment. At work, at school, you know, you've got some task before you, but oh my goodness, how am I going to do it? I don't know, I don't know. And so you, you procrastinate and you make excuses and you try to get out of the job because why? Because you're afraid you're going to fail. Your mind is filled with excuses or thoughts of inadequacies. It's a love cancer. Uh, The week I was preparing this particular sermon for my church, um, I told myself, all right, Paul, I'm going to meditate on the gospel and I'm going to free my heart and I'm going to love people and I'm going to tell my church how I did it. (laughs) What's my plan? But that particular week, what happened was um, certain conversations, certain issues in ministry came up, and it just exposed all my insecurities as a pastor and as a leader. People were like, oh, but Pastor Paul, we need this and this and this. And I'm just thinking, but I'm not good at that. I've tried. I've tried so many times. I'm, I, I'm, I, gosh, it just keeps going back to these kinds of things that pull me into my insecurities. And I found myself 
being very defensive and feeling really sorry for myself. By the way, if you want to, if you want to meet like a true noble martyr of this century, you can just, I'll talk to you later because in my mind, I, no one has been more sacrificial. No one has like given more and been misunderstood and just been like, oh my goodness, when I go off on the like feeling sorry for myself, I mean, I just go off. I'm, I am eloquent. I am, I am, you know, you would all have compassion on me if you just understood like all that I went. I mean, it's just go, it's pathetic. And, uh, and that's where I was that particular week, feeling trapped, feeling trapped by my own insecurities and inadequacies. And you know what I noticed in my heart? My heart was getting smaller and smaller and smaller. <laughs> and instead of loving the church, I'm like, how come nobody loves me? <laughs> you know? I, mean, I just want this guy, this guy, smaller and smaller. And then all of a sudden I realized, man, I don't care about anybody but myself. Fear is a love cancer. And then I found that I had to, preacher, <laughs> preach the gospel to myself. And I said, Paul, look at you. This is embarrassing, pathetic. <laughs> if your church members knew how ungodly you were in your soul, come on, get up. I said, Paul, haven't you been preaching? Your identity is not in your abilities as a pastor. Your, your significance is not in the size and success of your church. Your significance is in Christ. That your name is written in the book of life. It doesn't matter what your ministry successes are, are or your ministry abilities are. That is not the measure of your significance. Your significance is in Christ. So who cares if you have a few deficiencies? That's not what it's been about anyway. It's that Christ is my Savior and my Lord and my God and I am His Son. And I'm an heir of his inheritance. That's where my identity is. Paul! Why are you so upset about... Oh, you're not so good at this when Christ has given you the kingdom. Or I say to myself, Ephesians 2.10, whole another sermon. For you are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for you to do. Paul, you are made by God, and he has made specific good works for you to do. You are not inadequate for your job. You are perfect for your job. He made you, and he prepared the works for you to do, and God is not a sloppy craftsman. He has made you to do the very works that he has prepared for you to do. You are perfect for your job. That's the gospel. That's what Christ has done for me. He has made me his workmanship to do good works. Or I preach the gospel to myself and I say, God is with me. He will never leave me or forsake me. So do not fear for I am with you. Do not be dismayed for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Paul, if that's your God, why are you so, so, so afraid and so like collapsed on your fears and insecurities? Or a, a recent verse now, Psalm 62. My soul finds rest in God alone. My salvation comes from Him. Oh, soul, why are you so anxious? My soul finds rest in God alone. My salvation comes from Him. I had to preach the gospel to myself. I don't know if you understand. Do you recognize? I had to see who he is, what he's done, and what he will do. I had to feel and secure in that bigger story of, of his rescue in my life. And you know what else I needed? I realized I needed 
someone else to preach the gospel to me. Because this is what happens. So many times I hear this gospel voice in my, you know, I've learned now. So I have a gospel voice. But it's just a small voice and I don't hear it very well because a lot of times it's not very strong. But there's this big voice. You're a loser. You're bad. If people only knew you're so messed up, you're so inadequate. And that's so loud that I can't hear this little gospel voice. Because all I'm hearing is this. This is loud. And this is small. And so I try to get to this side and say, but, but Jesus loves you. <laughs> but you know what? It's just not cutting it. Because in that moment, I'm like, that's not helping me. Because I have these big fears and insecurities staring me in the face. And you know what I realize is I need another voice. I need another voice. It's not because I don't know this, what this voice says. It's because this is so loud. It's all I can hear. I need someone to help me hear the other voice. So to the church out here, I was, you know, I was just saying, I needed someone to preach the gospel to me. And I realized our church has a long way to go because we don't preach the gospel to one another. We don't know how to help each other be freed from our fears or from our greed or from our guilt. What I find is typically what happens is if you go to a guy and if I were to talk to a guy and say, man, you're not having these ministry struggles and I have these problems. The guys put on their problem solving hat and say, well, why don't you explain the situation? Let's come up with three possible solutions. And here are some resources you could check out. They are in problem solving mode. And in fact, when I was sharing with some of my staff, you know, I was, we were having a little accountability time and I was sharing. They're like, well, maybe we could try this and maybe you could do that. And, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe we can try to help you this way. They're on problem solving mode. If I were to talk with a girl, if I were to talk with my wife and I say, honey, you know, I'm really struggling because I have all these fears. She, she was not on problem solving mode. She's in empathy mode. Oh, honey, that's terrible. Oh, that must be so hard. Oh, I understand. Oh, my just cry together, weep together, and, you know, just share the pain. And... But you know what I find? Guys will try to solve the problems. Women will try to validate your feelings. But no one is preaching the gospel. No one is pointing me to my Savior. No one is showing me the hope that I have in Him. No one is helping me see God more. I realize our church has a long way to go because we, we don't even think in gospel terms when we see problems. We don't know how to preach the gospel to ourselves, let alone preach the gospel to one another. Because that's what I needed. I needed someone to point the gospel to me. Just interestingly, one of the best persons who preaches the gospel to me is my dad. My dad is a pastor and it's very ironic because my dad in one sense, is someone who truly understands the life of faith and in that sense, understands the gospel. But in another sense, he's a first-generation pastor and he's so legalistic. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Very paradoxical. But anyway, that's another story. My dad would always say, Paul, Paul, God is with you. Paul, God, God loves you. God's going to use you. You just tell people about Jesus and God's going to use you. I know God is 
called you for his purpose and for his ministry. God's going to be. And before I just kind of took it, oh, dad's just proud that I'm a, his son's a pastor and that he's just trying to encourage him. But now I understand. I understand. He intuitively is trying to build my faith. He's preaching the gospel to me. He's trying to put my, help me put my hope in God. Let me just take a, a tangential note. I wanted to squeeze this in somewhere. A word to parents. You have to preach the gospel to your children. You have to preach the God. And you have such a wonderful opportunity at a young age to raise them in a gospel environment. Don't just tell them, all right, I understand. Or, hey, here's how to do it better. No, you have to point them to their hope. And you have to create a culture of the gospel. So here's one of my favorite stories. Caleb, our second, when he was being potty trained, he was actually very good at holding. The problem came in releasing. All right. He was good at getting, waiting till he got to the potty. But once he was at the potty, it went who knows where. And so, so many times I'm like, Caleb, all right, Caleb, just wait, 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 aim, fire, all right, into the water, kabam, nowhere else, all right, just right there into the water, and a lot of times he's like, daddy, I gotta go, oh, okay, 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 Caleb, daddy, oh, Caleb, Caleb, please, be careful, oh, Caleb, you know, but at the beginning, I'm so proud, I'm like, oh, that's okay, Caleb, you know, just, just, just into the potty, all right, but after days and weeks of this, it's not that cute, it really isn't, I'm like, Caleb, I've told you so many. Be careful. Be careful. Caleb, next time you have to lift your shirt. <laughs> you laugh, but it wasn't that funny. <laughs> and uh, so there, there was a time when I had gotten visibly frustrated. And I caught myself. I got down on my knees. I said, Caleb, Caleb, Daddy loves you. Daddy will always love you. Daddy doesn't like it when you're messy. And Caleb, Daddy doesn't like it when I... Yes, Daddy does not like it when you're messy. But Daddy loves you even when you're messy. Daddy loves you even when you're messy. Daddy doesn't like it when you're messy. Daddy always loves you, even when you're messy. You understand? That's the gospel. You raise your children in a gospel environment. You don't have to do anything to be loved. Love is already given. It's already given. There's no fear or shame. You are accepted. And in that environment, you are free. To be messy. But you don't want to... Well, he's still... I mean, he's gotten a lot better. But, right? The Christian motivation now is we don't try to be clean to be loved. We try to be clean because we are loved. Sorry, just a side note here. You know it's true, right? Daddy loves you even when you're messy. Some of us are messy. <laughs> We're messy. We're so embarrassed and we don't want anyone to know. We don't even want God to know. But God says in the gospel, Daddy loves you. 
even when you're messy. If you could taste that gospel, you wouldn't be so afraid and your heart would be freed and you could learn how to serve others in love. But it starts with understanding the gospel. The application is just the outward actualization of having understood the gospel. Also, just a quick commercial break for the parents. One uh, uh, Bible story book that I've used that I has been highly recommended, and I highly recommend it well as well. If in case you hadn't heard, it's called the Jesus Storybook Bible. I forget I forget the, the author's name, but it's called the Jesus Storybook Bible. A great non-moralistic, redemptive, gospel-centered Bible story book, where at the end of every story, do you know who the hero is? It's Jesus. Jesus is the hero of every story. And that's what I teach my children. It's not, all right, and see, that's why you need to share. And see, that's why you need to stop complaining. And you see, that's why you need to say thank you. That's moralism. That's not the gospel. That's the law. That's teaching them law. At every end, at the end of every story, I say, you know what, guys? Because they're into superheroes. Do you know what? There's a real, real superhero. That's Jesus. He's a real superhero. And he has come to rescue us. It's not just a fairy tale. It's true. Our superhero has come to rescue us. Because I want my kids to grow up with a great, big, good, loving God. You preach the gospel to one another. You preach the gospel to yourselves. I need the gospel preached to me. I need to be reminded so that my heart can be freed so that I can serve others in love. On a different occasion, I was driving my car um, back from a meeting and there was this old 80s praise song. I mean, this goes way back. So what was it called? It was called uh, How Great His Heart Must Be. And it talks about so many snowflakes on the mountain, so many stars in the sky. Oh, the wonder and beauty of all creation. Who can fathom? Who can understand? And yet his love is greater than all of that. How great his love must be. And it goes on and on. I mean, it was just like an old song on the CD. But as I was driving that one particular day, it's, I don't know if this ever happens to you, but it's as if God just spoke through that song. All of a sudden, my mind was just exploding trying to put my little dinky head around it. How, how big that love must be. How, 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 how big, how unfathomable that love must be. And there I was driving in the car, you know, I'm giving it, you know, I got tears going down my eyes. I'm like, oh my goodness, this love is amazing. I don't know what, you know, cars charged on and by. And I'm like, how great, singing it out at the top of my lungs, just worshiping and just feeling. It's not, okay, listen carefully. Some of us love the line, Jesus loves you. Because what we like about it is we love ourselves. And that Jesus loves the one we love is really cool because we love ourselves. The foundation of our joy is that we love ourselves. But there is another joy in saying God loves you. Jesus loves you. When you see the beauty of Jesus and you see how wonderful and amazing he is. And there is a joy, not because you love yourself. There is a joy because you love him and you see his beauty. And that's where it was in the car. I was just like, oh my goodness, God, you're amazing. You're unfathomable. I was moved to tears. And in that moment, 
I was freed to love. I mean, I was rich. I was the billionaire on earth. I, I, I had, I had more than I could possibly understand. Caring for others, happily, <laughs> overflow. I mean, I've got, I've got love I can't contain. That's the gospel. The gospel is we're not trying to get, we've already received. And so now we live a life of love. We are freed to love. Faith frees us from our fears. Faith frees us from our guilt. Therefore, now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Christ, faith frees us from our greed. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. Faith, faith, the gospel pushes out the love cancer of greed and fear and guilt so that our hearts are freed to love. And if we don't have that, then we go back to where we were this morning. Love one another. Either you do it legalistically or you'll just be disobedient. But you're not living in the gospel. And you're not living, you're not fulfilling the law. It is really tempting to want to say at this point, so harvest, love one another. Love. Come on, guys. Love one another. But you understand that's not my application. My application is harvest. Understand the gospel. Understand the gospel until you feel the overflow and freedom to love others. Let's pray. If you'd like, you can pull out that sheet of Bible promises. And you might use that tonight. Because the first part of tonight I'd like to recommend is... You have to experience the gospel for yourself. Your brothers and sisters here do not need your human kindness. We want to see a community transformed by the gospel that can love each other in a way that the world cannot love one another. Perhaps you might reflect on how it is. What are the things, the love cancers for you? Maybe like myself, there's fears and insecurities that have shrunk in your heart. Or guilt. Or greed. I want you to cling to promises. I want you to cling to promises. And you fight the battle of unbelief. Say, Lord, help me to see your gospel. And a little later on, I think what I'd like to suggest is sometimes it really helps to have someone else preach the gospel to us. Because that gospel voice is really small. And our insecurities and greed and fear and shame, those voices are really loud. 
what an amazing thing it would be if we could be part of a community that lives in the gospel and preaches the gospel and frees us from the inside out. Not so that we can indulge a sinful nature, but so that we can serve one another in love. I'm going to say a prayer and then if I can give you some time to reflect on the promises. There are um, extra sheets of promises on one of those tables in the back. And, uh, and after a little while, we'll also have the opportunity to minister the gospel to one another. Heavenly Father, Lord, you say in Ephesians, you pray for the Ephesians that they would have supernatural enablement to understand the depth and the width and the height of your love. Because human minds can't get a concept of the dimensions of your love. And then you pray that we can understand an unfathomable love to to understand an incomprehensible love. Lord, I pray for that kind of miracle even right now. And by your Spirit, you open our eyes and open our hearts and we can see you. And we can see your story and we can see your love and we can hear Daddy say, I love you even when you're messy and we can feel him hug us and hold us even when we're messy. And something inside softens and something inside is freed. We're not good people trying to do more good things. We are sinners who've been rescued by an awesome God. We've been set free from the inside out. So Lord, we invite your spirit to do what only you can do. Open our eyes and strengthen our faith. Help us to hear your voice and sense your presence. That you really are so good. You really are so loving. How great is your love. The snowflakes on the mountains. The stars in the sky. And yet, your mind is filled with love for your people. How unfathomable is your love. pray that you would again reveal that by your spirit and free our hearts by your gospel we ask this in jesus name amen thanks for listening to the sermon from harvest community church if you would like more information or have any questions or comments check out our website at harvest-community.org thanks for listening